0: Well, I'm going to get in big trouble for saying this. Just trust me. But right before I came up here, Jereen was humming the song that we just sang. I heard you. And I was really encouraged by that. And I I hope that you were all humming the song as well, because we just sang, speak to us, Lord. And I hope that just resonates with you so that you'll be humming it. So you'll be thinking about that. So you'll be meditating upon that because if you. If you really stop to think one of the reasons that we come to church and gather together as the people of God is to ask God to speak to us. And he's always faithful To do just that isn't he we never have to uh, guess as to whether or not he will speak to us because we know that he speaks to us in his holy word and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3 we come to this passage with an understanding from last week that the Apostle Paul had laid into the Jews. Let me put that a different way. He really kind of let them have it. He confronted their hypocrisy and he destroyed their last line of defense at the end of chapter 2, which was the last rite of circumcision. See, the Jews held that because they had been circumcised, that they were good. They had been circumcised, so they were right with God. And Paul reminds his Jewish listeners and he reminds each one of us that apart from the gospel, we stand what? Guilty, we stand condemned, and we are utterly unreconciled to a holy God. Paul reminds his Jewish listeners and he reminds you and I that banking on our family tree... That banking on our knowledge of the Bible, dare I say banking on our understanding of the disciplines of biblical theology and systematic theology or our good works are all dead ends. Paul reminds his listeners and he reminds you and I that heart transformation is the exclusive work of God alone. It is not a partnership. When God transforms a heart, he does it alone and for his glory. And so all of this discussion leads us to the beginning of Romans chapter 3, where we explored last week, where the Jews essentially come unhinged. They had heard Paul in Romans chapter 2, and he discussed what he had to share on his mind, what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And they come unhinged. Last week we looked at the first of three accusations. All of which are laid directly at the feet of the Apostle Paul. The first accusation to review from last week is this. Paul you undermine the people of God. Can you imagine someone saying to the Apostle Paul that you undermine the people of God. Look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Jews are essentially saying this, Paul, are you really teaching that the Jews have no advantage over the Gentiles? Paul, are you really teaching that circumcision has no value Do you really believe that the Jews, along with the Gentiles, are under God's almighty wrath? Because that's exactly what Paul had expressed to them. And Paul's response was this. This is an erroneous assertion. This was an erroneous accusation. The Jews... Paul said in verse 2, were entrusted with the very oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with listening to the word of God, with learning the word of God, with memorizing the word of God, with guarding the word of God. They were entrusted to revere the word of God and to, to treasure the word of God really appreciated the verse that Kyle read, that we we hide the word of God in our hearts. We, we treasure the word of God in our hearts so that we will not sin against him. It was the Jews that had special access to God that no other people group enjoyed. We've looked at this over the last several weeks. The Babylonians didn't enjoy it. The Canaanites didn't enjoy it. The Hittites didn't enjoy it. There, there were no other people groups on earth. The earth that had the privilege of access to God like the Jews had. And so the accusation that Paul undermined the people of God was in error. It was indeed erroneous. The Jews are not through though with with pointing their bony finger at the apostle Paul. The theological sword rattling continues in verses 3 to 8 in Romans chapter 3 so let's stand together and i want to read this whole passage even though we're going to focus our attention on verses 3 to 8 this is god's holy word then what advantage has the jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the jews were entrusted with the oracles of god what if some were unfaithful does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of god by no means Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Let's pray together. Father, it's already been a good morning to be together with the people of God to to worship together and to Lift our hearts in prayer to you to fellowship with one another. we Thank you for the sweet fellowship that we enjoy with brothers and sisters here in this uh, church family. Thank you for the ways that you are, are blessing us. And we look forward to the days ahead watching you pour forth your blessing on a people who truly has a desire to glorify you by enjoying you forever as we take time to. Uh, study this passage. Lord, I pray that you would help me, that you would empower me to, to share a a very important message that it would not fall on deaf ears, that it would uh, be a message that would be received with a great joy and fruitfulness. We ask that the Holy spirit would come powerfully to apply the word of God to moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas and aunts and uncles and boys and girls and, young men and young women, teenagers, that all across the spectrum of people, the sea of faces that are before me, that your word would uh, perform this, this miracle. We recognize that this is your work, that you receive all the glory. We ask that you would strengthen us now according to your mighty grace that is found in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is erroneous accusations and this is the the second part to build off last week this morning i want to show you lord willing the other two accusations that paul's listeners put before him his jewish listeners and then also supply the pauline response accusation number two Is found in verses 3 and 4. And it is essentially this. Paul you undermine the promises of God. As we began to do last week. I want to invite you to to probe now. Beneath the surface with me. And essentially what I see happening here is this. The, The Jews are saying in so many words. Are you saying that those of us. Those of us who are Jews who are trapped in unbelief, and we have seen how that has been the case in in redemptive history throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you can think of story after story after story where the Jews were drowning in unbelief. I remember the first time this became very real to me. Do we have any Keith Green fans? Lots of you. That's amazing. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's safe and secure. Do you want to go? But, you know, I mean, nothing like Keith Green. And I remember as a high school student going, what in the world is that about? And then I began to look at it more closely and realize that he was just singing about what the Jews were experiencing is they, they they complain to God, we want to go back to Egypt where we have a meal in the morning and a meal in the afternoon and a meal in the evening. We're tired of this bland manna, what Keith Green referred to as the manna bread. manna, Okay. And so the Jews have a, a long history of of being a people who are struggling with believing God. Who are struggling to be faithful before God. And so essentially the accusation is this. Are you saying that Jews who are trapped in unbelief nullify the promises of God? A couple of words that we need to spend a few minutes on. The word unfaithful. If you'll look in verse 3. Paul says... What if some were unfaithful? And as Paul writes, this this is as if he is writing like uh, an attorney. And he's anticipating a response from his audience. And the Jewish people are essentially saying this. What if some were unfaithful? That word unfaithful comes from a Greek word that means to refuse, to trust, or rely on. On the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises. Those of you who have the New American Standard, the same Greek word is translated as you see as uh, uh, they did not believe. They did not believe. Whether it's unfaithful or translated as did not believe, those are both terrific translations in my mind. But the bottom line is the Jews are saying, what of those of us who refuse to trust or rely on the Lord Jesus Christ and his promises? Does that mean that the promises of God are nullified? The word nullified means this. And this caught me by surprise. It means to inactivate. To inactivate. It would be like this. You subscribe to DirecTV and you pay DirecTV that horrible, hideous... I can't believe how much they charge, by the way, just an advertisement. And you pay that every month and one month you forget to pay. And TV will send you an email to say, oh, by the way, if you don't pay by such and such a date... You're going to lose your service, and the email didn't come through, or it went into your spam folder, or somehow you didn't see it. You didn't get the letter, you didn't get the memo. And then you go home to watch the Seahawks game, and you turn on the TV, and here's what you see. And you're like, ah, wait a minute. What's going on? Your direct TV got what? It got nullified. It got deactivated. So that's what the word means. It means to inactivate, to cause something to be idle or useless. And so the Jews are saying to Paul, are you saying that those of us who refuse to believe the promises of God, we are utterly unfaithful, that that nullifies, that that inactivates, that deactivates the promises of God? Does their unbelief and unfaithfulness erase the benefit that they enjoy of having the oracles of God? Does their faith faithlessness nullify God and his promises? Look at Paul's response in verse four. And this is a a, a very important phrase. The phrase that Paul responds with is by no means and The men who are in class this morning can take a break for a minute because I spent some time to labor over this in our class. That comes from the Greek phrase, megoneta, which means this. It is unthinkable. Perish the thought. Hold your finger in Romans 3 and jump forward to Romans chapter 6 and you'll you'll see this in very plain terms. What shall we say then, Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, he had listeners at this point in his letter to the Romans who were saying, is grace so free that we can just do whatever we want and get off the, hit, get off the hook for living ungodly lives? And Paul's response was simply this, may goineta, by no means. Unthinkable, impossible. This little Greek construction is the strongest possible negative response that Paul could use. It's not like, it's, it would be like if, if you have a teenage daughter. You have a teenage daughter and she comes walking down the stairs wearing something that she should not be seen with in public. The father says, Hmm, well, maybe not. That is not Megonetta. Megonetta would be, Absolutely not! Young lady, march back upstairs and put something on presentable. That's what Paul's doing here. When the Jews say, You are undermining the promises of God. Are you saying that unbelieving Jews, that faithless Jews nullify the promises of God? Paul says, absolutely not. Go back to your room. (laughs) The Jews who are unfaithful have no bearing on the faithfulness of God. And then he builds the force of his objection in verse 4, if you read it with me. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. I would say that's strong, as it is written. And then he quotes, and if, before we read it, if you'd flip over to Psalm chapter 51, because that's, that's where he is citing from. And many of you will know the story of what's happening in Psalm 51 and the backstory to Psalm 51. And it revolves around King David and his sin with Bathsheba. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, if you're like me, and I think that many of you are, and probably most of you are, you're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? Am I the only slow one here? Is anyone else saying, what? what what's going on here? So in Psalm 51... You remember that King David was on the patio and he looked down and he saw a beautiful woman. Her name was Bathsheba. He ordered the woman to come to his chambers and you know the rest of the story. He committed adultery. He sent Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, to the front lines and make it look like he was killed in battle. But he essentially had this young man murdered. Come to Psalm 51, one. There was a season where David was not acknowledging his sin, if you'll recall. But finally he comes to the place, as my dear friend Wayne Pickens used to say, that confronting sin is like dealing with an onion, where you have to peel it layer after layer after layer. I'm convinced that at the beginning of when David was caught in sin, if Nathan would have confronted him the day after, David would have justified it. David would have whitewashed it. David would have blamed someone else. And isn't that what sinners do? They, they hide their sin or they hurl their sin. I'm convinced that's what David would have done. But in God's perfect timing, he sent Nathan the prophet. And he told them the story about the lamb that you very well remember. And he said to David, you are the man. And now we find David penitent. We find a man who is grieving at his sin. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There isn't one person in this room that can't relate to that. We have all committed sin. We've all committed a myriad of sins. We have all hidden our sin. We have all hurled our sin. We learned it from our father, Adam, and our mother Eve. But here we find David responding biblically and correctly to his sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, Only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Notice, and here's where Paul quotes from. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. After committing the sin of adultery and murdering Uriah the Hittite. David must have have, must have believed for a season that God's interaction and his dealings with him were unjust in some way. But now we see in Psalm 51 that he finally comes to his senses. And isn't there great joy in seeing someone ensnared in sin, which involves me and you and every other follower of Christ when they finally come clean? I'm thinking right now of my dear friend who committed a horrible, horrible sin. And I've shared that story with some of you. And my friend's sin sent him to jail. And it essentially ruined his life. Drove him out of a community. Sent him almost a thousand miles away to another city. And me and my associate, we worked with them and we worked with them and we worked with them. And that's where we learned that dealing with an unrepentant sinner is like peeling layers of an onion. We come to the place in the life of my friend where we thought he was ready to come before the church and, and confess his sin and find healing. And then moments before that event was to transpire, we found that there were other sins, hidden sins that we knew nothing about. And so we would start over. The process of confession and discipline and restoration, peeling layer after layer after layer. And finally, when you get to the bottom of it, what happens? Is the person breaks, and my friend broke, and he repented. He repented. He not only confessed to us. He confessed his sin to those who he hurt. He confessed his sin to the community. He confessed his sin to the association of churches that we were with. And what happened to my friend? God healed him. And he is used in a mighty way in a ministry now. Because He turned from his sin and he turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he has a a wonderful wife and two beautiful children, and he is growing in the Lord. And I am proud to call this young man my friend. Isn't it beautiful when a sinner confesses? Isn't it beautiful when a sinner repents? I don't think there's anything more beautiful. To see someone turn from their sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what someone needs to do here today. Perhaps even for the first time. And so please remember Paul never undermines the promises of God. Much to the contrary God is always faithful. Is he not? He always keeps his word. His promises never fail. And it's Martin Lloyd-Jones that is especially helpful at this point. And You have heard me quote Lloyd-Jones from time to time. He has been my, my constant friend and companion as we have studied the book of Romans together. He says this, not only does the failure of the Jews, that is the unbelief and the faithlessness of the Jews, not nullify the purpose of God, the failure of the Jews indeed seems to put greater relief and into greater prominence, the justice and the righteousness and the truth of God's way. What a perspective. And so to apply this to your heart and to my heart, there are two things I would commend to you. The first is to remember that whatever God starts, someone help me. He finishes Whenever God starts something, whenever he starts a project, he finishes. Mom, dad, if you have a young person who has now left your home and they trusted Christ and now they are away from the Lord Jesus Christ and they are truly regenerate, they are truly blood-bought Christians but away from the Lord, God will walk with your child and bring your child to the place where he will Remove the layers of the onion and then he will find his way to bring your child to the celestial city all to the glory of God. I remember and this is a painful painful illustration my tongues in my cheek. When I was a child I liked to make models and I'm here to confess to you that I don't think I ever finished one of my models. It's really embarrassing. I would go to Kmart, remember Kmart, uh, Payless, uh, whatever, one of the stores and I would, I would find a model plane or I'd find a model boat and I'd ask my mom or I'd ask my dad, can I get this model? And we'd get the model and we'd go again and I, can I get the model? And I remember my dad would say, but son, you have four models that you haven't even finished. Well, I, I want to get this one. I'm going to finish this one. I don't think I ever finished a model. I Honestly, I just don't think I'm smart enough. I just can't put it together. I would get distracted. I would get bored. Something else would compete for my attention. But not so with God. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Now I'm not sure what's taking place in, in your life right now. But I want you to remember that, that God is with you. God is protecting you. God is sustaining you. God will grant sovereign and merciful wisdom for every decision that you will make. God will comfort you in your time of need. God is your rock of safety. There is a Psalm in Psalm chapter 31 verse 14 and 15 that has been a massive encouragement to me. In fact, today I wrote it on one of my prayer cards when a while back, I don't know how long ago I started putting these prayer cards together and let's just say his name is Joe and I would pray for Joe and I would say, here's the prayer request. And I think I picked it up in a book someplace where you would write a scripture below that person's name that would kind of, uh, be the guardian over these particular prayer requests. And so as I was praying for, This person, this is the verse that I selected to put over his name. Psalm 31, 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. And mom and dad, your children's future and fate. Is also in the hands of the living God. Paul says this in Philippians 1, six. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you. Will bring it to what? To completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is to say. Whatever God starts. He finishes. I'm sure glad he doesn't follow my strategy. In making models. Or we would all be a mess. Number two. Please remember that God always keeps his promises. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. May we at Christ Fellowship be deeply encouraged to know that our God is faithful, faithful, faithful. Notice the final accusation accusation number three and let's read in verses five to eight but if our unrighteousness this is the objection if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of god what shall we say can you sense the attitude that god is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us i speak in a human way again by no means for then how could god judge the world But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? I believe the accusation here is essentially that, Paul, you undermine the righteous purposes of God. Probing beneath the surface, there are a few questions that surface here that go something like this. If the faithless Jews amplifies the justice of God, which is the argument we just learned about, then on what basis does he have to punish them? It's an interesting question. Or the Jews might say, is it not unfair for God to punish people who help showcase the majesty and the righteousness of God? And then there's another question that you read through the, through the back door, if you will. And it's essentially this, Paul, are you not promoting the doctrine of cheap grace? Is that what's going on here? Look at Paul's response. And it probably won't surprise you or shock you that the Greek construction of his response is may goinata by no Means We saw that in verse 4. We see it again in verse 6. We see it once again in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. The strongest Greek expression to describe a negative response. I believe that Paul would have concurred with Bonhoeffer. I have to say I personally have my theological qualms from time to time with Bonhoeffer. A very brave and courageous pastor in Germany. But there are theological issues, but one place he was on board, he said this, and I think Paul would agree as well. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. The cost of discipleship was the title of that book. And so Paul understood that the Jews, this is his background, he understands that the Jews believed in a final judgment. That much was true. Not for them, mind you. You remember who their father is. It's all the other nations that are in trouble, but not the Jews. But if their argument is valid, that means that even the Gentiles would be exempt from judgment. And so once again, what does Paul do? He annihilates their argument. And while he does not answer the accusation of cheap grace completely or comprehensively, he will tackle that subject in Romans 6, verse 1, as we looked at earlier. What shall we say? Shall we continue so that grace may abound? May Gwynetta. And so at the end of the day, in the final analysis, Paul, the apostle, upholds the righteousness of God. And he responds to the three accusations and correctly labels them as erroneous. Instead of undermining the people of God, he upholds the people of God. Instead of undermining the promises of God, he affirms the promises of God. And instead of undermining the righteous purpose of God, he promotes the righteous purchase, uh, the righteous purposes of God. Like anyone... The Jews are coming with questions for the Apostle Paul. I'd never thought about this before until I studied this passage. It's very easy for you and I, it's especially easy for me as the preacher, to say, look at what the Jews are doing to Paul. I can't believe they're talking to him like that. I can't believe they would accuse him of undermining God and the the ways of God and the plans of God and the purposes of God and the promises of God but I got to thinking about it. You and I do the same thing. We bring our questions and our accusations to God. And once again, Lloyd Jones helps to summarize this whole section of scripture. As we find Paul responding to his Jewish objectors. Here's what Lloyd Jones says. And it's, it's a litmus test that I would commend to you before you come into the courts of God, God, With questions or accusations. He says this. A very good way of testing any view. That is your view of God or your questions you will bring to God. Is to ask, is this view humbling me and glorifying to God? Is the view that I hold about God. Does it humble me and does it bring glory to the living God? You see, each of these Jewish accusations is filled. And I chose this word specifically. It's a word we don't use much anymore. But it's important. Each of the objections is filled with hubris. Hubris. What's hubris? Excessive pride and overconfidence. Paul, is this what you're doing? It's it's filled with arrogance and pride and overconfidence. And so the challenge for you and I as non-Jewish people who respond in a very Jewish way with our questions is to be God dependent and gospel centered as we pose our questions to God. As Dreen and I were talking a few days ago, Dreen made the observation that asking questions of God is healthy. Asking God why he does what he does is a healthy thing, but we always enter his courts with Humble questions, not outstretched arms and shaking fists in his face. Finally, whenever we preach the gospel, we must preach it faithfully. One commentator says, what is not evangelical preaching is the kind of preaching which says to people, now, if you live a good life. If you do not commit certain sins and if you do good to others, if you become a church member and if you attend regularly and are busy and active, you will be a fine Christian and you will go to heaven. Close quote. That is the definition of unfaithful. Non gospel preaching. The same writer says, because we preach that a man is saved in spite of his works does not mean for a second that therefore we say, quote, do evil that good may come. We never say, let us sin so that grace may increase. God drops something gracefully graciously into my lap this morning. That was not a part of the sermon. I'm reading a a brand new book that was just released a few days ago. And when I read the sentence, I immediately inserted it into the sermon outline. The author says this, the truth means that biblically faithful preaching and evangelism must uncompromisingly proclaim the inability of the sinner to please God Or turn to God in faith and repentance. Sinners must be told that all they are capable of doing as sinners is sinning. I believe that is one of the missing links in the church today. Is we tell sinners that they have to do all these different things. That they have the free will to do all these different things. And unconverted people only have free will to do one thing. sin. The author continues. They must never be led to think that anything they can do can commend them to the favor of God. They must never be led to think that any hope for salvation rests within themselves. And so this morning, as we close, I direct your attention to the foot of the cross. In light of these Jewish objections, I direct your attention to the foot of the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ died for he is your Only hope. He is your only refuge. He is the only one who can deliver you from the consequences of sin, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. He's the only one who can deliver you from yourself. And so instead of questioning like the Jews in this passage, may we find ourselves coming to the fountain and Drinking deeply so that our souls are satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. I remember reading a line from Charles Haddon Spurgeon years ago. And as he was talking about approaching God and coming into the courts of God, it was this phrase, and I can't remember what sermon it was from or when I read it or why I read it, but it was this phrase, we should come with unquestioning acquiescence unquestioning acquiescence. That is how we come into the courts of God. Unquestioning acquiescence with faith, with outstretched hands, ready to receive, ready to worship. And in those seasons of doubt, and they will come. We cry out like the man in the new Testament, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. That is the proper posture. For a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father thank you for guiding us through these verses. Thank you for reminding us the importance of the gospel. Once again we'll see it week after week after week. And we must be reminded of it. Because as Luther said we keep forgetting it. Lord, I pray that you would sharpen not only our memories, but you would soften our hearts to the truth of your word, that we would recognize the the reality that is before us, that you are faithful, that your promises are sure. You never stop in the middle of a project and, and turn away from it. You always complete what you start. And so Lord, as we, we close with an act of worship, may you receive our, our singing, may you receive our prayers as a fragrant offering to you with hearts that may be hurting, hearts that may be lonely, but hearts are, that are filled with faith nonetheless. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.